Hello and welcome to the Safety Wire podcast. I am your host, Tim Wade, here for another episode looking at aviation safety from the ground up. I am honored that my guest is probably one of the most recognizable names in business aviation today. He's an award-winning author of multiple books focused on human performance and risk mitigation, the CEO of Convergent Performance, and the namesake for MBAA's Professionalism in Aviation Award. Dr. Tony Kern, it is sincerely a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. I appreciate the introduction. Looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. Yeah, I got plenty of questions lined up for you. So, you know, over the years, you've massively influenced this industry. So take me back, if you will, to what got you started in aviation. Yeah, well, it was um, every set of wings has its own story, right? And uh, and mine is a little atypical, I think, maybe not. Uh, but I never knew much about aviation. In fact, the first time I ever flew an airplane on an airplane, I was in control of it, kind of. There was an instructor sitting by me, but uh, I grew up rural in northern Michigan. My dad was a game warden and uh, went to college and did college stuff. Got out, worked for a couple of years as a school teacher and realized that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so in uh, 1980, uh, I ran down to the recruiter's office. Um, the only one that was open early was the Marines. I went in there. He said, hey, listen, you got a college degree. Uh, you can go to officer training. Um, I said, I never really thought of that. I just want to get out of teaching school and do something different. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, those Air Force guys, they'll be in in a couple hours probably. He said, why don't you wait around and talk with them? So I sat and had coffee with a Marine. Um, and when the Air Force guys came in, uh, they uh, took a look at my college background and said, you know, we might be able to send you to pilot training. So that's ridiculous. I've never flown an airplane in my life, never been in an airplane in my life. And, uh, and they said, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's sort of paint by the numbers. And so I took the AFOQT test off to Vance Air Force Base. The rest is kind of history. There you go. The poor Marines. I started off in the Marine recruiting office, too, and ended up in the Army one, so across the okay. hall. So yeah, very similar. So when you first got into aviation back in the military, how would you describe the safety culture when you first entered aviation compared to how it is currently? Yeah, so... First of all, I was in something that no longer exists called the Strategic Air Command. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those were all the, um, the nuclear delivery platforms, right? Missiles and bombers. And the safety culture in that thing was unlike anything I've ever seen before or since. Uh, minimum passing grade on any test you took in SAC was 100%. Um, people failed check rides routinely. There were no notice examinations for knowledge and emergency procedures and operation limits and tactics, again, 100%. And if you uh, if you didn't meet 100% and no one did it all the time, you sat on the bench for about a month uh, and studied and then you recertified in front of the wing commander. So accidents still happened, but the idea of not reporting a hazard or the idea of not um, leaning into every task and knowing everything that you could know about what you did was, was unheard of. So over the years, I flew a little bit um, and SAC got absorbed into the Air Combat Command, all the fighter guys. And I realized that the rest of the world wasn't like that. So for me, I came out of a very precise performance culture. Um, and then ever since that point, I've seen it slowly uh, dissipate from personal accountability into different things, not bad things, but I mean, the best safety management system in the world could not touch what the early Strategic Air Command uh, had in terms of reporting and mitigation and all those things. 
Um, of course, technology wasn't a factor then. System safety wasn't a factor then. So I've seen a lot of changes uh, over the past 40 years, that's for sure. I can I can truly imagine that. You know, we go from, you know, a, a culture back then. And obviously, with with your command position, it's it's a lot different of a culture for the platforms that you're flying on. But I've definitely seen us improve. I think aviation is one of those industries that can truly see what we've done incorrectly in the past and improve as we move forward. Where other industries, it seems like if they're doing something incorrectly, they just cut it off or they fire somebody. In aviation, it seems like we are much more geared towards learning from our mistakes as we progress through. Um, so bring us up to today with Convergent Performance. Could you tell me a little about what Convergent Performance does and why you felt the need to start this company? Um, I will, but I want to respond to your last comment first. Sure. Um, you're exactly right. We don't know how good we have it in aviation, especially those who have always been in aviation. I work in a lot of different industries, law enforcement, firefighting, uh, even done work with investment banking things and big government program management teams. And, and the rest of the world does not understand what we understand. Um, and that is that we are going to have to continuously fight the battle for safety and quality uh, and that we do that by recognizing the shortcomings that we have and testing things to correct them, right? And, you know, I could give you 50 examples of that in aviation. The rest of the world does not think that way. They think one of two ways. Uh, either they're locked into the status quo, and sometimes that's for financial reasons, sometimes that's for careerism reasons, uh, sometimes that's just because people don't like change. Uh, or the second reason is, that they, they have traditions in their own industry, healthcare, for example. The gap between a surgeon and his surgical team um, can be that small or it can be miles wide. There's no standardization, very few use checklists. And in spite of the fact that, that there's been tons of evidence that it would improve outcomes dramatically, they refuse to adopt it because it's too hard for them to, uh, to make the change. So we're lucky in aviation, mm -hmm. really, really lucky in aviation. So back to your question about mm -hmm. uh, why we started Convergent Performance back in 2003. So we're just a couple of days away from being uh, celebrating our 20th anniversary. Um, Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. It, it goes back to um, a specific event in my life. Uh, as I grew up in the, uh, in the Air Force, I eventually got into the B-1 bomber community and I was the uh, chief pilot in our standardization evaluation division at the uh, schoolhouse at Dias Air Force Base. And I uh, got a phone call one night about two in the morning <clears throat> that a bomber had gone down. And uh, it turned out that that event uh, involved two uh, of my former students. One was, I really uh, took him all the way through the program. The other, I just taught when he was uh, trying to upgrade to instructor. but. Like 80% of all the accidents uh, was a pilot error accident. <clears throat> 31 seconds from operations normal to death. And the short version is they got slow, they recognized it, they pushed the power up, they got fast, they lost situational awareness, and they hit a mountain at 600 miles an hour on a moonless night in November of 1992. And, uh, and my life sort of changed around that event. That was really a fulcrum event. I started when the investigation came out, it took six to eight months for the investigation to come out. I started wondering why people of that high caliber 
could make that kind of mistake. First of all, because I knew I could make it if they could make it. And mm-hmm. second of all, because you keep reading. Back then in the Air Force, we had something called the Blue Four News, which was every fatal accident, right? Mm-hmm. And you keep reading all of these, you know, final turn, hit the top rudder. Everybody knows you don't do that in a T-38. Um, mid-air collisions where they had already called knock it off. And everybody knows you don't do that. And so I kept coming back to this. Why do smart people that have already had the wherewithal to climb the ladder, get their wings, get into these sophisticated airplanes, why do they break down and have these kinds of mistakes? And so Mm -hmm. I went out with my Air Force career for a while. I got out in the year 2000 and I took over as a head of the U.S. Forest Service Aviation Program, largest non-military government program in the world. And, um, and we had a couple of things happen there. We had a couple of wings fall off of airplanes and, uh, and we ended up having to ground an entire fleet. And I began to look at it from a maintenance perspective. Mm-hmm. How, how do airworthiness standards fail to the point where wings fall off of two airplanes in 31 days, right? And, and so I began to look at it both from a personal angle and from a systemic angle. And then the last, uh, the last thing hit that caused the company to be created. Um, I got a call from a U.S. Marine colonel at the time. Uh, he would eventually become a three-star general named uh, John Callsign Dog Davis. And, uh, and they'd had a, Marines had had a really bad 18 months, the worst safety record in their history. And he picked up a book I had written after my, my two students had crashed called Flight Discipline. And he said, I wonder if you could come over and talk to us for a couple of months and help us sort this out. And I went back to my boss, who at the time was the Secretary of Agriculture. And I asked her, I said, the Marines would like me to go work with them for just a couple of months. Fires are all out. I'm not real busy in my office. And, uh, and she told me no. And so I went home, prayerfully considered it, came in the next day and quit my government job and started Convergent Performance. So that's, that's the origin story. Outstanding. My goodness. Uh, and, you know, to take it back to the maintenance side of the house, that's what hits home for me being part of a 145 uh, MRO. Uh, and to see that in 20, 25 years ago when you were with the Forestry Service and looking at those maintenance incidents and the risk involved with that, bringing us all the way up to this current year. At the beginning of the year, I read you declared 2022 as the year of the aviation mechanic. So over that 25 years, what are you still currently seeing in our industry that made you wanted to focus your skill set so heavily on the maintenance side of the house? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of things in my background. Um, one was uh, back in, in the early days of my B-1 world, the Air Force did a really dumb thing where they said, one, one wing, one boss. We're not going to have a maintenance boss and an ops boss. And, and so there are a bunch of maintenance squadrons that needed a boss, right, because they'd removed them from it. So for, uh, for about six months, I was uh, a commander of uh, operational maintenance uh, squadron group of squadrons, actually. And I was temporary, and I knew that, and they knew that. But I began to get down and do things like crawl inside of the fuel tanks and KC-135s and um, get into some of these small, dark, confined spaces where these guys have to do really precision work, guys and gals. And, and I was amazed. I was amazed by the level of work that they did. I was amazed by the lack of resources that they had to do it. And I was amazed on how they weathered all these changes, including some idiot like me coming to to be their boss. I really wasn't. I was smart enough to hand it off to the chief, right? But but 
that was the beginning of my understanding. Now, I'd always flown aircraft that were extremely well maintained, and I had a deep appreciation like most pilots do, but I never really understood it at the, uh, the micro level. And so that's always been in the back of my head. I've always stopped everywhere I go to talk to the maintainers and visit the hangar floor and listen to them talk about something that I probably didn't, couldn't understand, but, but was always fascinated by anyway. And, and then I, as, as we looked at all of the stuff that's going on about the great pilot shortage, of course, it's paralleled by the great maintainers shortage that no one talks about unless you're on the right websites or something. <laughs> and I thought, holy smokes, how is it that we're missing one of the most key components to the overall system safety? And we sort of assume if we raise the wages a couple more dollars, we're going to get qualified people that are going to stay for a lifetime. I knew from my background and experience the tough work that maintainers have to do. I mean, I've watched people trying to maintain airplanes in Alaska underneath mosquito nets in the field, in the bush, um, and do it well to airworthiness standards, right? With task cards and, and all that. So I don't think the, the vast majority of our industry understands the demands on the maintainer. And so I said, we're just gonna try to highlight this if we can. So we, we declared it the year of the aviation mechanic. We held a big uh, symposium in September, uh, half day. And, uh, and we just tried to celebrate um, raising the profile of uh, aviation maintenance technician. And, you know, we've come a long ways from the knuckle buster days to, uh, you know, highly advanced technologies, uh, integrated systems. But what we have, <coughs> excuse me, haven't really changed is the environment they have to work in. They're still mm -hmm. working in small confined spaces uh, with less resources than they need, long hours, sometimes out of specialty. And we thought it was time to, to highlight those challenges. Well, we personally cannot thank you enough for doing that uh, because like you said, all the focus and fanfare is usually on the flight side of the house. But when you're working, looking at safety of flight issues, you know, I think the ground has just as much buy-in as, as the flight side of the house, of course. Um, and you had mentioned uh, working for an idiot like you, I would never use that word for sure. And, you know, for, for those of you listening who don't know, Dr. Kern's uh, doctorate is actually in higher education, correct? Yes. And, and you have a concentration on, uh, on human factors. Um, you know, when I first got involved with the MBAA safety committee, uh, they were working on a research study. I believe Terry Yeomans was actually heading it and he was in charge of the ground ops team. And it had around 3000 line items of maintenance and ground ops incidents that had happened over about 10 to 15 years. And he had them broken out into contributing factors, causal factors, root cause, really an impressive study. And what we found when we started crunching numbers was around 84% of those came back to human factors. And once you dug even deeper in that, around 88% of them had failure to follow procedures as a contributing factor. So technicians are choosing for a multitude of reasons in these incidents to deviate from guidance and manuals. You know, what are your thoughts on this, how to combat this, and what advice do you have for organizations to learn from this? So it's a pretty, a pretty serious um, challenge and has been for a long, long time, but it's changing. So this is going to take me a minute. Um, the, the first thing to understand is that um, failure to comply is an issue of professional discipline. Right mm -hmm. now, there are sometimes training issues, right? So maybe they didn't fully understand what the guidance was. 
then it's not a failure of discipline. That's a systemic failure. More often than not, Tim, they do understand and they choose for one reason or another not to comply. In and of itself, that should be an isolated event, right? Mm -hmm. But there's always a patient zero out there, the first guy or gal that says, you know what, I really don't have to get all the way up into that section to inspect that jack screw on the Alaskan airliner thing for appropriate lubrication, right? I, I really don't have to, besides it's a four hour task. And if I don't have to get the ladders and climb all the way back there and all mm -hmm. that, I just read the paperwork that it was done 18 months ago, it's probably good, right? And so that person does that, signs it off, gets away with it, um, and others see it, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we get the whole evolution into what's called the normalization of deviance. I believe that there's a couple of things. One, I believe the culture of maintenance has eroded. Um, I think it's eroded for a couple of very uh, important reasons. And by the way, it's not just maintenance. I see this in law enforcement, in firefighting, in businesses. Mm -hmm. It all has to do with first line supervision. Um, maybe not all, but a great deal. When you think of the first boss you worked for, right? Mm -hmm. He or she was your role model, your confidant. To most of us, they were minor gods, right? Mm -hmm. They told us how it should be done. And in the environment, like I said, where I grew up, there were no compromises on compliance. Mm -hmm. None, right? If you were caught willfully not complying, they'd hang you from the yard arm, uh, metaphorically. I mean, you could, you could lose your career for a single event for willful non-compliance in the old strate strategic air command. But I think there's a lot of factors, mission pressure, time pressure, schedule pressure, um, but most of all, and this has happened over the last 10 or 15 years, as we've gotten shorter and shorter on personnel, mm -hmm. we promote people faster into these first line supervisor positions. So we have people now that, um, that are in first line supervisor positions that were the patient zeros of the deviants in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so now what they are, are their, uh, their super spreaders, if you will, we have, we have people in place that have moved airplanes without the required number of people their entire career. And so all of a sudden they do it tomorrow and they run a wingtip into a hangar or, or they activate a hydraulic system uh, without checking with everybody and cut somebody in half. Um, you know, all these things are, are real. I'm not, these aren't hypotheticals. These are from real case studies. Mm -hmm. And we wonder how in the heck that could ever happen. Well, it could have happened at any one of those times that they did it, the 50 times when nobody was in the way or the hangar was was not right there when they did it. So so I think that we have, we're experiencing a normalization of deviance that's associated with uh, maybe too rapid a progression mm -hmm. uh, due to manpower shortages. So there's non-compliance is rampant around the world, not just in maintenance. Um, there are other causes as well. I think one of the negative byproducts of SMS and system safety and technology is that the personal accountability piece, that, that individual discipline to make sure it's done right before you close it up or ask for inspection or whatever, has diminished a lot because we're nested inside of so many 
safety protections, we think mm -hmm. we're just a small cog in this wheel. If we don't do it right, somebody will catch it. Something will will correct it. Or the last piece is the people that write the procedures, they, they've never been out here on the floor. They don't know as much as I do. And that's hubris, right? That suddenly manifests itself in some real ugly ways. So I think there's an awful lot of pieces to that puzzle, but they're pretty well known and we can attack them. Absolutely. And I think those, those patient zeros that you mentioned, I think the supervisors that we currently have really need to tie in to, because I think a lot of times those people are getting congratulated for getting a four hour task done in two hours and not asking, why did it get done in two hours? Not investigating why it is. It's just, hey, that's my that's my best mechanic. They get work done super fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot more needs to be done on the supervision side. I think, you know, what you just described there is the, the natural tension between operational readiness and safety, right? Mm -hmm. So they should never be going head to head, right? Yes, the schedule is important. Yes, the customer should get off on time and land on time. Those are, those are outcomes that are clearly visible and often vocal, right? If they don't take off on time, somebody's going to hear about it. If they land late, somebody's going to hear about it. And so those are naturally the things we tend to lean toward. And then when somebody points out that, well, it's important that they get there at all, right? Mm -hmm. What if the airplane came apart? They go, ah, that never happens. Business aviation is the safest mode of transportation in the world. We didn't get there by thinking that way. And that's what we have to come back to. The reason aviation is the safest mode of transportation in the world is because those that came before us didn't think like we do now. Mm -hmm. I think we're getting way too comfortable with, it's been calm. It has been, we haven't had a rash of major incidents that we've had to learn from, which is how the culture got to where it is today, for sure. Um, you know. That kind of leads me into SMS a little bit of how SMS is evolving with how many data trends are coming through. And I've heard a couple people over the past few months saying that SMS is just the new flashy safety thing. And I can only speak for me personally in the SMS program that I've worked with, but I truly believe it's a tool that when it's used properly is very successful in risk mitigation. What are your thoughts on a possible upcoming mandate for 135 and 145 operations for uh, with regards to SMS? So I got to go back a little bit here. Um, mm -hmm. It's important to understand that SMS and things like IBAC um, and ISBAO and those things, they all came from other industries, right? And if you want to go back and really trace <clears throat> their origins, they kind of all came out of ISO, International Standards Organization. <clears throat> Excuse me, post-World War II. Uh, group that came together and says, hey, if you buy a liter of gas in France, it should be the same as a liter of gas in England, right? Really good mm -hmm. stuff to start with. <clears throat> they built a metric-driven risk control process to ensure that what the customer paid for is what they got, right? Mm -hmm. So out of all these things rolled these systems, right? Quality management systems, safety management systems. So when people say SMS is you know, the latest new safety fad, first of all, they're about 20 years behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and secondly, it's it's not a fad, it's a pretty proven concept. In my mind, what SMS has not done is evolved generationally, right? Mm -hmm. The, um, uh, for example, you mentioned SMS does a really good job of managing risk, and there is a risk pillar in SMS. 
there it, along with what safety promotion, safety policy, and something else. What is it? Safety uh, risk assurance. Yeah, safety risk assurance, or just safety assurance, right? I don't think safety risk. Assurance, yes. Yeah. So to me, those are really good pillars. They're really solid. But I think there's there's other things uh, in that in that model that could be there, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Safety education, where, where does that fit, right? Well, maybe uh, it fits, well, it certainly has got to fit in policy because we got to have it. Does it fit in safety assurance? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I thought that was about posters and newsletters. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to get confused on some of mm-hmm. these things. I think also the entire outcome of an SMS is risk management, actually mm-hmm. risk control, right? Risk control. I don't management's kind of a geeky word. Control is an aviator's word. So in my mind, SMS should evolve. And, and as we as it comes down to potentially being mandated, I, if I were 135 people and, and I was out there uh, trying to decide how this was going to be rolled out in my organization, I would make it right for me today and, and start to move that across the industry and then go to the FAA and say one size doesn't fit all. Yes, we get that the airlines work. It works very well for them. It works in Australia for for charter operations. But but here in, in our world, we think we need more or less or different. And the FAA is very good at listening to users. So what we tend to get is the regulators coming down with this. Are you for it or against it? And there's so much more we can do inside this. If we know it's coming, let's find an alternate means of compliance. Let's find uh, ways that this fits better for family-run organizations like business, aviation in many cases. Um, and I think that's definitely doable if we had the right group of people begin on that project pretty much yesterday. <laughs> I, I truly agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for your insight on this and, uh, and insight on all the questions I've asked so far. Uh, this is truly an absolute honor to be uh, speaking with you. And I wanted to close us out with one last question. Um, you know, as we're closing out 2022 and looking towards the upcoming new year, you know, your, your name carries a lot of weight to it. Uh, and I know you're probably one of the most humble people I've ever met, so you might not view it that way, but what advice do you have for our safety teams worldwide right now, looking forward into the next year, you know, um, what would you like to see change or improve next year with regards to aviation safety? Well, if I'm talking to safety professionals, which I'll do first, I'll say get out of your office and stop thinking you're only a safety professional. Right? Safety crosses every threshold. I could give you a dozen case studies where a poorly written contract ended up in a, in a mishap or an accident. How, when was the last time a safety manager went in and sat down and had coffee with a contract manager? You see what I'm saying? We've, we've got to get more cross-functional. And, and the way you do that is not by being a time vampire and showing up saying, I'd like to sit down with you and have a cup of coffee. Have something to offer, right, mm-hmm. to the cross-functional areas. Hey, do you know some of the challenges we're facing down there and some of the things that we're doing that make your job easier? Let me just tell you how efficient things are going down there. I'd like to show you. I'd like to bring you down there. Um, I think there are a lot of things uh, that safety people need to do a little bit more aggressively. Uh, contracting is one of them. They need to be involved in all those decisions. HR, right? You know, you say, okay, we need we need two new AMPs and a, and a manager. And it gets to HR and they funnel down and maybe late in the game, 
you're involved in a last minute selection or an interview, should be involved in every step of that, right? Where are the candidates? Even before that, recruitment. Um, we need to be out there doing more recruiting. When we become uh, Safety Joe and we're narrow inside the safety parameter, mm -hmm. uh, we're often viewed as unneeded, right, and obstructionist. But when we become part of the greater team of any organization, and it's true in the military, it's true in, in Part 121, it's, it's true in 91, 135, when we become part of the greater team and show how much benefit our insights and wisdom and, and knowledge can have to that greater team, we're gonna, when, when we do need something, we don't have to go hand in hand and, and play the safety card. They'll, they'll know how valuable the safety manager is as part of the team. The last thing I'll say is uh, there's, there's a number of safety people out there, probably none of them watching your podcast, but maybe they can uh, put it in front of somebody who, who needs this, um, that view safety as uh, simply an unfortunate uh, side-tracking moment in their careers, right? Mm -hmm. They really wanna be something else but the safety job was open and it was their opportunity. Or maybe they just walked by their boss's office, got hit in the forehead with an earth missile <laughs> and said, you're, you're my safety guy. Hey, it's, it's a real honor to be a safety person. It's a huge responsibility to be a safety person. And if you wanna be more than a safety person and become a safety professional, there's a lot to learn. So get started, Absolutely. yeah. Incredible advice, as always. Thank you so much. And, you know, what you touched on with the different locations, I think a lot of people don't realize that safety should broaden out into the into every entity of the business. When I was going through school for to learn about SMS, I was always told it's not hard hat safety. That's a portion of it. But it's are you hiring the right people? Are they a risk to your organization? Is your accounting department about to bankrupt the company? That would be a risk to the organization. There are so many different parameters that go into the safety. It's a business continuity plan. It's it's not just keeping people from not getting knocked on the head. Uh, so Dr. Kern, once again, thank you so much for your insight, your advice and your opinions on everything. It, this was truly an honor to, to sit and talk with you today. Pleasure is mine, Tim. Good All luck. Right. Thank you so much, sir. Take care. See you.